everyone, it's Krista Bontrager and I'm your tour guide this year as we go through the Bible as part of the Route 66 campaign for Grace Church of Glendora. This is the Points of Interest podcast where we preview this week's reading and get you ready to get into the Word of God. Are you ready? Here we go. Well, you've made it to week 12. This week we're in Judges chapter 1 through 18. Now, just to give you a little heads up, the book of Judges is a very challenging book from the standpoint of understanding not only just what's going on, but why it's happening. It's important to keep in mind that there is a great cultural distance between our own time in North America, 21st century Christianity, and the world of the ancient Israelites. So we're going to encounter a lot of things this week that might make us scratch our heads a little bit or think, why did they do that? Why were they so vicious? Why did they make these vows? What's happening here? And just try to hang in there with the text. I'm going to hit some points of interest along the way to try to help you out and get over some of the rougher moments in the in the text but just do the best you can to get through it. But you're going to probably come away from the book of Judges with some questions. So it's going to be really important for you to interact with the pastoral team or your small group leader and ask those questions. The setting of the book of Judges starts off with the death of Joshua. This is important because we've now transitioned from the wilderness generation to the generation in the promised land. So everything we're going to read about this week is all happening after Joshua has passed away. Much of the book of Joshua was about conquering the land and undergoing the transition from the Canaanites to the Israelites, dividing up the land between the tribes. And yet here we are at the death of Joshua. The land has still not been fully occupied by each tribe and things seem to start off. Okay. The leaders that were raised under Joshua, they asked the Lord what they should do. The Lord answers, but then we read in verse 19 how the tribe of Judah went about taking up its allotted land. It says they took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. And then it continues verse 21 and 22 and 27 and 29 and 30 and 31. They were not driving out the Canaanites. Each tribe is trying to take the land, but they are not driving out the enemy. This provides the key setting for what's going to happen in the book of Judges. The chaos that will ensue because the Israelites did not fully drive out the Canaanites. From chapter one, it seems like it's telling the story from the Israelites point of view. You know, they were a little too weak. The Canaanites were a little too strong. But when we get to chapter two, that's where we get to the real story. That's God's perspective on what's happening. Why things are not going well with Israel. It's not that God is not delivering them. It's that they have broken their covenant with God. He held up his end of the bargain. He delivered them from Egypt, 
but they are not holding up their end of the covenant and they are abandoning their worship of him alone and beginning to worship other gods. Their failure was that they did not remain faithful to the covenant promises that they had made God. Then when we get to chapter three, we see the introduction of Athenial. He is the first judge that's mentioned in the book of Judges. And he's almost set up as like the ideal judge in the book. It's a very brief account. He's not very well known to us today, but he's at the very beginning. And it says that God empowered him by his spirit. He was led of the spirit and God gave him victory over the king of Aram. And then there was peace in the land for 40 years. And then we encounter the pattern in Judges. God raises up a judge. He goes to war, has a victory, hopefully. And then there's peace in the land. But then another generation rises up that doesn't obey God. Idolatry sets in. And then the people get conquered by an enemy country. They cry out to the Lord. The Lord raises up a judge. The spirit comes on the judge. He defeats those people. And it's this cycle over and over again. So you want to watch for that. So we see the first part of this cycle happening in chapter three in the transition between Athenial and Ehud. Now, this might be a good time to mention an important observation in the book of Judges, and that is when we read the Bible, it's sort of intuitively obvious to us that not everything in the Bible is, is approved by God. In other words, people do things that God doesn't necessarily condone. That's why we call it sin. So when there's pillaging or murdering or raping, violations, we think, well, you know, God doesn't approve of that behavior. So it's kind of you know, it's just giving us a historical account here of what happened. Well, one of the more kind of difficult aspects of the book of Judges is that we have these leaders who are supposed to be on God's side, but sometimes they're not acting altogether godly. And sometimes they make even downright bad decisions and sinful decisions. And so there's a little bit of tension and discomfort there because our Sunday school ideals that we've been taught and had drilled into our heads since childhood is that, oh, God's leaders are godly and righteous and true. But yet that's just not the accurate picture that we have here in the book of Judges. So we get to chapter six and seven and the story of Gideon. And could there be a more unlikely hero than Gideon. The picture that's painted here when we first meet Gideon is he's hiding in the wine press, threshing his wheat. And the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And you're kind of thinking, mighty warrior? If he's so mighty, why is he hiding in the wine press? And it's a little bit of uh, sarcasm, I think, on the on the part of the Lord. As we read through chapters six and seven, the image of Gideon that emerges is a man who just, he doubted God. He didn't believe that the impossible things that the angel of the Lord was telling him could happen. You know, they, they tell him to dismantle the altar of Baal and build an altar to God. Well, it's not exactly an, an act of courage to be doing that at night because you're afraid of what your neighbors are going to think. And even when he resorts to kind of a form of manipulation with the fleece, asking God to perform signs, 
even though the God kind of goes along with that in the end, it's ultimately God as the as the promise keeper, the covenant keeper, he will not be manipulated by Gideon's schemes. And that's really actually a powerful reminder to us that God won't fit into our terms, our demands to work the way he, we think he should work. He works according to his covenant promises always. Now when we get to chapter eight. We're going to see a very different side of Gideon that emerges Instead of being the timid, fearful, hesitant man, he goes in hot pursuit to take revenge and to take matters into his own hands. He kind of makes a rash vow with some Midianite kings. I can't get into all the details of this kind of disturbing account right now, but I think that this is a good example of how God's leaders in the book of Judges don't always act in a godly way. What's missing from Gideon's punitive punishment against these kings and their people is God. God isn't involved. God isn't telling Gideon what to do. There's no involvement for, from God. Gideon is acting in a merciless and vindictive way against his own people, completely opposite of God's compassion and patience with Gideon. Now, skipping ahead to chapter 11, we have the very difficult story. In my opinion, this is probably the most difficult story in the Old Testament is the story of Jephthah. He is a judge and he does do some good, but he makes this rash vow where he ends up at the end of the story, sacrificing his own daughter. And again, this is another one of those examples where God's leaders don't necessarily do things that God approves of. And we don't ever see in the text that God was in favor of Jephthah fulfilling this rash vow and sacrificing his daughter. Many unbelievers are, are very confused by this story. And so you'll want to read that story carefully. We're going to end the week in chapters 17 and 18 with a story that you may not be very familiar with. This young man steals some money from his mother. He eventually returns it. And then she tells him to take a portion of the money and to basically build a little shrine with some household idols. So anyways, after he sets up this little shrine, a Levite wanders by from Bethlehem and kind of becomes the personal priest of Micah and his mother and, and their household. Now, a couple of things about this priest he was not abiding by the Mosaic law that we've been reading recently about where Levites are supposed to live. They're not just supposed to randomly go live with people. This priest seems to be kind of a renegade in the way that he's painted right at the beginning. And then he comes in and, and he's serving this family, but he doesn't get rid of the idols. He doesn't get rid of this shrine. And this sets off a series of situations that really become a stumbling block on many levels to different people. So when we get to chapter 18, it begins again with the ominous refrain, and in those days Israel had no king. And in those days the tribe of the Danites was seeking a place of their own where they might settle because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. Aha, there's that theme again that we saw in chapter one, that the people are trying to settle the land still. 
basically the bottom line here is this is an outworking of the problem that's set up back in chapter 1 where the Israelites are having problems occupying each of their tribal territories. And in this case, the Danites are trying to take over the hill country. Unfortunately, these idols that have been made by Micah back in chapter 17 are still there at the end of chapter 8. Verse 31 tells us they continue to use the idols Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. Now, in Shiloh at that time was the tabernacle, and that was the place to go for official worship. But this this priest that was here with Micah and his family, those idols still continued to be in use. Well, we're going to put a bookmark right there for this week, and we'll finish our adventure next week in the book of Judges, go on to the book of Ruth, which the book of Ruth actually happens at the same time in, his, in history as the book of Judges, and then we'll get started in the book of First Samuel. So that'll give you a little preview of coming attractions. And I want to give you a little tip for this week. One thing that's going to make your reading a lot easier is this week is if you have a map of the Holy Land. You know, maybe you have a study Bible around the house or a Bible handbook. Go online, look for an atlas for the period of the judges because there are going to be a lot of cities. And it'll be great if you just take a few moments to orient yourself on the map. Okay, we're talking about this city. Where is it? Am I in the north? Am I in the south? Am I by the Jordan? Am I east of the Jordan? Am I over by the coast where the Philistines are? Having that map at the ready will be just a great enhancement to your reading time this week. Well, that's all for now, and I look forward to joining you again next week as we continue our adventure. We'll see you then. 